Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, the show that looks at politics on both sides of the Atlantic, sometimes from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is sat in Birmingham in England. It's a little bit hot and muggy, as we'd say, in Britain. But Brits, Logan, have many words for the weather and for temperature, and muggy is one which I've never heard in American speak. And to prove that, I'm going to ask you, Logan, if I say to you the weather is muggy, what's your answer? Oh, I understand it intimately, because while it might not be the word we use as our go-to in Washington, D.C., muggy is the perfect description for us as well. God damn it. You've just gone, completely destroyed my, my, my treaties there. But anyway, we have with us Logan Phillips today, who is the originator, the head honcho, the big cheese of the website, The Race to the White House. We had you back on before in December. Um, obviously, we're rather soft and cuddly with you, and you, so you decided to come back. Hey, it's a pleasure to be back. I had a great time. I love the um, back and forth. I get to have both of you in the audience. So happy to be back a second time. So the GOP's presidential race has begun it could be summed up as a comeback seeking indicted ex-president a principled vice president in parentheses a trailblazing republican woman and an awkwardly homophobic governor with various also around decoding republican party's presidential primaries runners and riders to help us to do that we have here with us today logan phillips from the election prediction site as i said before the race to the white house now, Logan, historically, it's now normal to see large fields of Republican candidates running for the honour of being the President of the United States. Is this media opportunism, or does this smack of the ideological diversity and the broad appeal of the Republican Party? Why do we always see such a big field nowadays? I think it's because there's less gatekeepers. There are clear benefits to running. Primaries are also relatively new in American politics on the presidential level. I say relatively because this was in the 60s. It started to shift away from power brokers and 
smoke-filled rooms deciding who the nominee was going to be to it being the voters in the party. And state by state, it started to switch until it's almost entirely that now, with a few small exceptions. And now it's clear it can be a great launch to your career. You have the occasional Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Jimmy Carter, who starts out at 1% or nothing and ends up winning. And for those that don't, they can become a national force in politics, potentially. Or if they're like Mike Huckabee, start a radio show and make tons of money. To that point, somebody like Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, are they running because actually they want to be seen as a mover and shaker in uh, Republican politics? Or is this a placeholder election for, let's say, 2028? For some of them, it is. But you shoot for the sun, maybe you get the moon. I think they're all trying to win, almost all of them anyway. I was looking at a lot of electoral history to be able to assess this before this primary started. And they just decide, even though there isn't that much evidence out there, that they just want to run. And every once in a while, some of them will just kill it, like Pete Buttigieg did, and rise to prominence, even if they don't go all the way. More often than not, that's not what happens. But I think it's a a few things that could happen. I think in Hutchinson's case, he thinks he's the right guy for the job. He knows it's probably not going to happen. He also thinks he has important things to say and disagrees with the direction of the party. And so he's, what the hell? I'm done with being governor. I might as well do what I believe in and see what happens. And maybe that's perhaps sounds a little optimistic, but I think just because our politics can be toxic doesn't mean that every single person in the political system themselves are going to be toxic. So for Hutchinson, you can tell when someone is there probably for the right reasons because they don't say the things that are going to help them win. And he's certainly not saying things that will help him win. So that's why I give him such a kind read on that front. So maybe what one of the things he's looking for and looking to shape is the Republican Party post-Trump. Exactly. Now, Chris Christie's kind of stolen that role from him. His message connects a lot more. He gets a lot more media coverage. And he's been taking the primary role of the Trump basher and saying the party needs to move on and focus more on character. And he seems to be pretty successful at that. It's a hard road to the nomination, but it's certainly a path to relevance and impact. Okay, so let's go through the declared runners and riders. So first off, we have Donald Trump, criminally indicted former president, a sexual abuser and leading GOP candidate of whom simple solutions are always the answer for complex issues. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who is a vocal critic of Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's actually maybe Trump's strongest contender for the GOP nomination. Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the United Nations, who broke ties with Trump and aims to fix the immigration system. Mike Pence, the former vice president of the United States, has launched his campaign and seeks a complete ban on abortion. We have Vivek Ramaswamy, an entrepreneur and author. Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, has joined the race, who is a fan of the Republican donor class. We have Larry Elder, a conservative radio host. Asa Hutchinson, who we mentioned before, the former governor of Arkansas. And Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. Am I missing anybody? Yeah, you're missing a few ones that are lower tier. I'd say the most prominent one you're missing is Will Hurd, who is a congressman that has a large pathway to the nomination, but he is one of the best communicators in the party and probably one of its best leaders from a character standpoint, but he's not a good fit. If the GOP had taken the path that the RNC suggested after Mitt Romney was president and tried to focus more on appealing to young Americans and non-white Americans, he would have been a fantastic nominee. But in the version of politics that we have of Donald Trump winning the nomination, it's long and it'd be a long and hard path for uh, him to be able to win. Because a lot of the guys that supported him are exactly the people who would have supported him are exactly the people that have left and become independents or now shifted towards Democrats. You know what? 10 out of 10, Logan. 
I didn't put the long shots in here, right? So I went for the contenders and people with a reasonable shot. At the risk of repeating myself again, but let me frame the question in in another way, because we have this really big Republican field. Um, Considering that what you do is to crunch polling numbers, what would you see is a long shot candidate now? There's the long shots, and then there's the people that are long shots to gain relevance or coverage. So Heard is in between the two. He's a very serious guy that would have got a ton of coverage in 2016. He'll get some. He maybe he makes the debates, maybe not. He actually said he won't pledge to support whoever the nominee is. And not all these, a lot of these guys will sign that pledge without meaning it. He won't even sign it, so he probably can't make the debate. So that'll make it harder. There are guys well below him, though, that no one's ever heard of. Corey Stapleton ran for Secretary of State in Montana. And then decided to run for the president after not getting that. There's a businessman who failed to get enough signatures to get on the ballot for the GOP governor in Michigan, Perry Johnson. He's running a bunch of guys like that. But for long shots in terms of chance to win, which I think is in a different class, you have people like the mayor of Miami and I'd even put Azo Hutchinson in there that it's just really hard to see their path. They're probably going to be stuck at 1%. If they have a great cycle, maybe they get to three or four. And honestly, I'd even say there's some other guys that will have a big impact on the primary, like Chris Christie, but GOP voters are very sensitive right now to criticisms about Trump. And if you're too hard on it, I don't know if they're willing to get over it. His favorables are quite low. So it's hard to see him able to convince over 50% of the party when over half the party doesn't like him already. Gotcha. What does this large field say about the Republican coalition? If we break it down into the kind of the faith of black conservatives, the diehard committed conservatives, the populist right, etc. What does this field tell us um, about those various factions? I think right now it tells us that they really like Donald Trump's stealth and that his image is pretty unshakable. And I think the reason he's unshakable because someone else that had one-fifth of his problems or maybe even one-tenth would have been long gone. But part of that's being a former president. But I also think if you look at how he rose in 2016, it wasn't just the appeals to immigration or white identity politics. It was also this idea that there's a lot of corruption in our political system. I might be a jerk. I might be a little greedy, but I'll be greedy for you and make money like I made money for myself and take on all these people who have been promising you things, but never delivering. They're all corrupt. And so that type of framing, given that it was successful for him when he won the nomination, makes all the critiques of him from the Justice Department to the media to other Republicans paint them immediately as corrupt. So they have an extremely hard barrier to break through to people because they think it's all coming from a position of malcontent. And so for his loyalists in the GOP, which depending on how you frame loyalty is a very high number, right? Deep support is much smaller, but still credible. Serious levels of support is over 50% of the party. They're sticking with him despite all of this to this point. Now we're early on in the primary. We just know the support is real. We don't know if it will change once he gets on the debate stage as people like other candidates. He's no longer growing in support. It's staying stagnant and that's a real shift. It's going to be a long way for these guys to challenge him. They have to A, make it a one-on-one race by Super Tuesday after the first four states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And then they're going to have to change the calculus on Trump or some, to get some of these people to start supporting an alternative, which I think is possible, but it's going to be a real tough challenge. Okay, so let's just go through the the top four runners and riders in terms of the amount of support they have from Republicans. Trump is at 51.8%. Uh, Rock. Ron DeSantis is at 23.5, Pence is at 8.7, and Nikki Haley is at 3%. 
Is this fundamentally just a race to see who can actually be a contender to be with Ron DeSantis? You never know these things are going to shape up, right? I bet you're going to see some guys rise and fall. But DeSantis has fallen a lot. He's a 21% now. Well, he's certainly the most likely guy to beat Donald Trump. He's the guy that pulls the best against him one-on-one. But it's not the advantage that he had last time we talked, where it was pretty close in the head-to-head. I think DeSantis has lost two things to a degree. One, he has lost some of the moderate voters, relatively moderate, let's say, in the GOP as he's made a hard push for Trump supporters. Two, he has lost the electability argument, which used to be very strong for him after that 20% win, but he's now pulling below Trump. His numbers have fallen 15 points of independence. And so that weakens the argument. It's also true that GOP primary voters have a much higher opinion of Donald Trump's electability than the general public does. They seem to think he's strong where everyone else doesn't so much. Although if it ends up being a one-on-one of Tim Scott or something like that, Tim Scott will have a strong argument to make. So I didn't answer your question. So my bad. Let me get back. No, oh, yeah, I and, I, and I realized as soon as I, I, I said my question that my, my framing was slightly off. I said a contender with DeSantis and obviously what I, what I meant to say, we're, we're all presuming that uh, fundamentally Trump is going to be, at least he's going to go into Iowa being the, the leader in, in the polls. But um, just because you lead the polls and win Iowa doesn't mean that you, you, you walk off with, with the nomination. And we expect um, most people expect that DeSantos is going to have a strong showing there. If DeSantos is losing support, where is that support going? It's going to a few places. Some of it went to Trump, who has gained 10 percent or so since the beginning of the primary, or at least since November, because he lost a lot of support after all of his candidates did so poorly. And they had such a disappointing midterm and people blamed him, but they've moved on from that. Some of his support has gone to Haley, to Scott, to Christie in New Hampshire, maybe not as much nationwide, and some of it's just gone to undecided. I'm not one of the people that thinks something's over because you fall. McCain went from a narrow second to like seventh place to victory in 2008, so things can change. But DeSantis's biggest strength, other than his electoral argument after winning Florida by so much, was on COVID. That's really what won him a lot of support from the GOP because he was more against restrictions than Trump and certainly compared to other governors nationally. But that's a lot less salient to people for obvious reasons in 2023 than it was in 2021 or 2022. Plus, other guys are now making arguments and it was only Trump and him that were getting coverage and no one else. In a vacuum, it's a lot easier to um, have the influence. If he was able to scare people off from running, which was a possibility because he was pulling historically strong for the guy in second, then it would be a different story. But now he has some other contenders, like especially Tim Scott, that could be a potential risk for him. I think Tim Scott is an interesting character because he does seem to be falling in between various cracks, but the donor base, if, if everything I read is to be believed, seems to be pro Tim Scott. So describe his electoral appeal and, and how potentially somebody like that can navigate on the one hand a DeSantis and then on the one hand a Trump to win this nomination. Yeah, right now it's a little early to say with confidence the central planks of Tim Scott's campaign because these things get unveiled over time and you adjust to the electorate if you're good at what you do. That being said, in a tonality shift, which maybe is being uh, Christy to a degree may want to move there as well. He's offering a much more positive vision of America than most of the people running. And that's the thing he loves to make sure is emphasized in every press coverage about him. You can just tell by the things that he says and his communications people say too. Because the party has become quite doom and gloom lately. 
and he is betting that people want to believe again and that he can lead them in that path. He's very good at having viral moments. He's very religious in an authentic way, which isn't necessarily true of some other parts of the field. So he's hoping that he can connect and build relations with a lot of these evangelical pastors in South Carolina, which he has done for a long time as the state senator, and in Iowa. And he is starting to grow in Iowa. He is at the point where he has gotten broken into that second tier, or th- maybe third tier, depending on how you want to frame it, with Pence, Haley, Vivek Ramzamoy. So he's going to get attention. He's going to get in the debates. He'll get his fundraising. But it's still, he'll have to break out from that tier to the place where maybe DeSantis is, especially if DeSantis falls below 20%, to be a candidate who can make some more aggressive moves. And we'll see if that happens once we get the debates going and if the party, if the primary starts to get a little more fluid. Right now, it's been stagnant. Let's go back to Ron DeSantis. He's seen as the, the key challenger to Trump for this nomination. And and if we're looking at the polls, um, he's at... I, I've got 23% here, but you're looking at much more um, accurate polling uh, than me. Um, and he's been lo- losing uh, support. How damaging was that video uh, for I don't, him this weekend? I don't think it's that damaging. I think it is damaging for people that follow it online. It could continue to double down on themes for the general election in terms of how influenced future reporting. It was a ridiculous video. I've been following this account. It's like DeSantis war room or something. It is connected to the campaign, but it's a constant problem for the GOP that they have these people online. It's probably like an intern or staff member, just enthusiastic supporter that they granted a title to, who is just about five paces more radical than the campaign itself, which will, for example, occasionally flirt with the anti-vaccine stuff, but not come close to fully endorsing it. But this guy will be constantly criticizing Trump for having any support for the vaccine and producing some pretty extreme statements. Same thing on the anti-gay stuff. Census has been a lot more aggressive on the anti-gay stuff, but not as aggressive as this video was that he posted online. It's clear this was not made by the campaign because it's an unbelievably shoddy and badly made. It spends the first half, for those who haven't seen it, attacking Donald Trump for saying something pro-gay after a mass shooting in 2016 in a gay nightclub, and then emphasizing DeSantis's anti-gay legislation, and then cutting before pictures of DeSantis looking cool and men without their shirt on, which is really, Chastin Buttigieg said that the ad basically was looked like it was trying to be gay, even though it was anti-gay. It was like not exactly a consistent message. And so it didn't make him look good at all. But I just don't think that it will get much attention for GOP primary voters. It's not going to get that much coverage there. It just makes him look more radical to the general electorate and specifically to the gatekeepers, the reporters who will be um, driving some of the image DeSantis gets with the general election based off the way they cover him. I must admit, I'm not a Fox News watcher or One America et al. But how important is the framing of a candidate on those channels? Is this a case of Ron DeSantos is the blue-eyed boy of, of Fox News? So they're not going to talk about that video. This is us who are part of the Twitter sphere or the punditocracy or the chattering classes talking about this. But but Fox News, One America, et al., they're not. So does that then just go to underline your point? That type of Republican primary voter, they're plugged into this. It's a nothing burger. Yeah, I will admit my biggest weakness when it comes to analyzing the GOP primaries, I find it very hard to bring myself to listen to hardcore talk radio or One American News. So I'm not super up to date with how they've been covering this, but it just doesn't feed in terms of the types of things they criticize DeSantis for. He has made anti-trans rhetoric a central pillar of his campaign. 
And while that doesn't always go toward targeting non towards the rest of LGBT people, it's not exactly the type of thing that's going to hurt them with them too much. They're probably mostly on board with that. So I don't think they're going to care. They probably think the ad's ridiculous because it was so badly made. But I don't think they are offended by the message the way that people at CNN or ABC or NBC or mainstream or left-wing, centrist and left-wing news, which I group those in different groups. I don't think of CNN and certainly ABC as the same thing as MSNBC. But those guys are going to be offended when it's something that's object- just aggressively anti-gay. But the right wing isn't really there. And they do tend to give DeSantis... Some of the Trump allies are going after him, but that's not usually the thing they go after him for. Um, he's lost support in part because Trump's allies and with massive amounts of money by Trump and Trump-related PACs has attacked DeSantis for past support of cutting Medicaid. And I, I do think that's the thing people miss in this GOP primary is that the primary the, in, on economics has shifted, uh, the party has shifted quite a bit to the left, the voters, not the actual elected officials. And that's why part of the reason Trump won the last time. And DeSantis is not speaking to their economic concern. Most of the party isn't. Trump is. And that's part of the reason why he's doing well up to this point. I should have really dug into this before you came on to the show today. But what is the polling around the word woke and people's perceptions of it? Because it appears to me that we're about to go into a, a primary season, at least on the Republican side, which is going to be the war on at least the word woke. But do you actually have any polling around America's attitude around that word and what that people think it means? Uh, I don't have polling on hand right now. I've seen some polls that say some Americans think it's a good thing or bad thing, depending on how you frame it. It's not a top concern outside of the GOP primary. There is the polling I have seen, like it asked, would you like Republicans? And I think they asked specifically around DeSantis to stop talking about this. And the answer was overwhelmingly like, please stop among independents and Democrats. Now, GOP, they like it because they view they're not thrilled about culture shifting. And a lot of this is counter reaction to their I, I don't know if I would necessarily view it as a counter reaction, but that's how those voters would view it as a counter reaction to this culture moving left. What's new about it on the DeSantis front, or at least unusual, is the idea of using government to as a tool to push back on cultural changes you don't like versus trying to influence the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I think that DeSantis is talking about this stuff because his views do align with most of the GOP party on this. But it's also a problem when you don't have a second gear. He's going to have to find a second gear and he very well may well find it. But it's not the central focus to the degree that he's made it, I think. And that's part of the reason why he's falling behind. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. And once the primary heats up, we have the debates that will just resonate with people. But I'm just reminded of the quote that Joe Biden said in a debate once about Rudy Giuliani when he was the front runner in the 2008 primary. He said that everything Rudy Giuliani says is a noun, a verb, and 9-11. Because the former mayor of New York made that his pitch every single day on the campaign. And it does feel like now every sentence DeSantis says is like a noun of urban woke and hasn't been enough for him so far. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic looks at the news and the views primarily from the US and the UK. And I try and use the lens of the other side of the Atlantic to, to frame it. We are now putting out more shows. If you are listening to this in the audience, in the live audience, that means you are on Clubhouse. If you're listening to the download of the podcast of this and a good five, six, seven thousand of you download every episode. And I thank you for that. If you'd like to be part of the live recording of this podcast, download the Clubhouse app. Then you can be alerted when these recordings go live. You can be in the audience and then you can digitally raise your hand, come up on stage and be part of the podcast. Let's go back to Donald Trump, because if I was a betting man, I would say that he's probably going to win the nomination. 
uh, regardless of his various legal jeopardies. Is there any polling on basically Trump and his legal woes? Is there any sign that base Republican voters are tiring of him and his various legal problems? Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence showing voters are tired of him relative to 2020 because he was at 52% or so, not at 85%, which is where he was in the 2020 primary. Admittedly, he didn't have any serious opponents, but still, it didn't matter who was going to challenge him. He was going to win 80% of the vote, at least. But are they tiring more since they did in November of 2022, if anything less? He doesn't appear to be losing ground no matter how many of these things happen. Now, maybe that's because you haven't had the full marketplace of ideas yet without the debate. Maybe when the argument is made on electability and the scandals being exhausting, it will resonate. I think the odds of that are now under 50%. I would have said they were much higher when he was losing 15% overnight, but it appears that's temporary. It shows that maybe you can get back to that and maybe there's a chance to beating him 55, 45 or something, but boy, that's going to be tough. Now, the general election voters, you know, his polling hasn't gotten worse for Biden since this started, but there are a lot of serious warning signs, especially with the second indictment, but the first one wasn't so great for me either. 53% to 37% say that they support the indictment for classified documents. Um, 49% to 41% say they supported the Stormy Daniels indictment. And to me, by far the most worrying for him is, but you ask people, what would you say? It should Trump be able to serve as president if he's found guilty. 28% say yes, 58% say no. And I don't know the poll because I can't find it. It was a long time ago. Um, There was one or two polls I saw that asked, how would your vote change if he's convicted? His support plummeted uh, an enormous amount. It might've been as much as 10%. So you don't know if a conviction is going to happen if the trial will be done by then. But I think if it is, and I think if the indictment is serving over him and he keeps going to the jury, I think it has a real chance to A, freak people out, B, remind them of other issues of corruption, including trying to overturn the last election. And the more the focus is on him versus Biden, probably the better it is for Biden. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How much is actual good old-fashioned policy 
playing a part with any of the polling figures so far. It appears to me, and if I was American, I am, and I'm not, I would be voting Democrat, or at least not voting Republican. I think that's pretty fair, fairly safe to say. So I say what I'm about to say with, with that lens, holding up my biases. I'm always shocked by the lack of policy prescriptions and detail of Republican candidates. They seem to always be fighting against a policy and or some perceived kind of cultural war issue. But that's just me with my biases. So you're much more analytical and neutral. So that massive setup, are there any policy prescriptions which particularly the American people are behind? And is there a candidate or candidates who are using that to fuel their campaign? I think that's what they should be doing if you want to beat them, because you got to start offering new things that will create pe- address people's economic concerns. I think education is probably the biggest opening for Republicans. If you have a can- especially if they want to tie it to the general, not focused on the racial conservative stuff, that just pushes away swing voters. But if it's about kids being left behind by COVID, and you come up with some creative, innovative policy solutions that will be trying to get America back on track, it is a weakness for Biden, and it is a weak and it is a, one of the biggest problems in America right now. Is all the learning that kids lost who are still struggling to thrive the way they might normally in schools. It's not like we didn't have problems of education beforehand. It's just there's a lot worse. And that will speak to the concerns of parents. And there's parents in every single voting block, a lot of them have, because that's front and center to their mind. But the policy parts, guys have plans. They're not front and center up to this point, but it's still also very early. You don't have an Elizabeth Warren who has a plan for everything driving the field towards that. GOP is a little less wonky on the policy, but I'm sure you'll start to see that shift come out. It's just this is not the stage in the primary where people are going to focus on much as the policy. And to be honest, I think it's more about emotion and values right now. And maybe that'll endure. But there'll still be some policy focuses. The person that can do better, and I think we haven't seen this yet from DeSantis, we'll see if that changes, is someone that can create at least a feeling of how their country will change with their presidency and how it'll make things better for them. It may not necessarily been stuff you actually followed up on, but Donald Trump did do that in 2016. And a lot of it was about trying to make the GOP more pro-worker and anti-corruption, building the wall, et cetera. Like the stuff he said, people remembered. They got a feel for what it would be in that primary. No one is doing that up to this point. But again, we haven't even finished on the end of July. We're more six months out from a little under six months from when these votes will actually start. So they'll probably see a few people do that and we'll see if it actually works. It's not an easy thing to do, but those that do it tend to be the successful candidates. Okay, this field, how do you expect it to maybe be whittled down before we get to Iowa? Let's take out Trump and his various legal jeopardies because he doesn't even have nine lives. He has nine T lives. Let's just say that Trump is going to be there. Is there anybody who you think particularly is declared you don't even think they'll get to Iowa? It depends what type of race they want to run. If they want to be able to run one that's competitive, if they're trying to make a point. If they might just want to be there for their staff and their team and the volunteers that have sweat hard and long to get them there, they sometimes will wait till that moment, even if they know it's not going to happen, just as a nod to them. There are plenty of candidates who have that risk, but I don't think it's necessarily fair to them to say that before we have a debate and all the moments that will be created for them to grow. The attention to the primary is far smaller today than it will be at the end of July. And by the end of July, the attention to the primary will be far smaller than it will be in December. So you don't want to necessarily give up just yet. Um, the candidates that are able to get enough attention will have much more of a shot because that means if their message is the one that ends up resonating with the GOP 
uh, and GOP leaning independents who are in states where they can vote in primaries. Um, if that's the message that will resonate with them in this particular moment, we won't know that yet. But if they get enough attention, they'll have a chance to make that case and to thrive. The ones who aren't able to get the coverage, that aren't able to make the debates, it'll get a little more hopeless. And those ones, a lot of them will drop out. I don't think it matters if they drop out before Iowa. They have to drop out if someone's going to beat Trump as long as they're taking any real support by Super Tuesday. So on that day, you have about four from to a third of the country voting in one day. That includes California and Texas. A lot of these states have a provision in them. We always, people sometimes say a lot of the GOP's winner take all this on exactly right. Some states are when it comes to the delegates. And as I was mentioning before, a lot of these are like, it's like the Electoral College. You, your goal is to win the amount of delegates, not the votes. Um, I believe Clinton won the popular vote in 2008 against Obama, ironically. Happened a second time or first time then. But Obama won the delegates. So that really does matter. In California, if you get if they keep the current rules as they are, you need 50% of the vote plus one. You get all their delegates, and that's the most delegate-rich state in the country. It'll get you over 10% of what you need to win the whole primary. You get 49.999% of the vote. You don't get all the delegates. You get a big slice, but you don't get all of them. And California is a state that is more at least earlier on in the primary, was more skeptical of Trump. It's probably a must-win. So you have to get to the point to win over 50%, most likely to beat him unless Trump really declines. And same in some of those other big states that are on that day as well. So by South Carolina, the rest of the field's going to have to drop off or voters going to have to stop caring about them to turn into a one-on-one race to make that type of thing possible. I really should have asked this next question much closer to the start of the show. But if you are not Donald Trump, what is the triangulation uh, that you need to navigate um, a pathway to at least still being viable in in this race? You've got to be different from Trump as opposed to, let's say, anti-Trump. Do you obviously you need to wrap yourself up in the flag? Though it's really interesting that you say that increasingly now somebody like a DeSantis and not all but many candidates aren't very much the house on the hill type of thing. It's a case of America isn't working. It's almost like a dystopian view of America, which seems to be fueling fuel, fueling their, their campaign. And then is there another triangulation, whether it's jobs and the economy and or healthcare? Because the interesting thing is that 78% of d- Democratic voters and 62% of Republican voters say that healthcare is really a top priority. But I don't really see any Republicans talking about it. So explain that triangulation of you being different from Trump, not maybe bashing him too much or going to the other end, Chris Christie, where you absolutely say this man is anti-democratic. It's true to the other aspects of the polling, which says this is what the modal American Republican voter is interested in. Yeah, I my. If I were to give advice to you, candidate, my biggest advice is start breaking from traditional Republican positions on this and find things, poll test and find, that are cons- more moderate, even slightly left-wing. Like, like J.D. Vance supports some more bipartisan-type legislation that cuts against the normal conservative point. That is where the voters are. The how You wouldn't know it from the way the House works about, let's shut the government down, unless you create these huge cuts, and the GOP might have supported that the voters because they love it. They love a fight and they weren't paying attention to the policy details as voters often are. They're supporting a lot more a lot more programs that would help people um, that aren't doing so great in the country. So find ways to make yourself sound different and support some things that are conservative approaches to problems that might be traditionally be things Democrats are more concerned with because 
Trump has led to the departure of many wealthy people who are doing pretty well, but are culturally to the left um, that might have supported tax cuts, but are too offended by or, or disagree too sharply with Trump's cultural approaches and his character. So they've now become Democrats who are delineating independence. He has brought in a lot of working class voters that traditionally were motivated by Democrats' blue collar style policies, but agree with him on culture. It's a different tariff and people are not reacting in how they change it, their approach. You're going to get some pushback. You got to differentiate yourself from the field. And right now, there's not many people speaking to those voters. And so you got to go where people aren't, so long as it's something they genuinely believe. Politicians BS all the time, but in primaries, if you're not at least emotionally authentic, voters tend to sniff that out and they're not as much on board. I think you're better off saying something that doesn't pull perfectly, but that is authentic and makes you sound different from the rest of the field. I don't know who that would be. I could see Chris Christie doing it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Christie move to fourth or third. Again, I just think it's going to be hard for him to win. But he's really willing to break from the field on things. And he's a good finger for the pulse of the country and the party. He's just not necessarily going where the pulse is because he hates Trump so much and thinks the party needs to move on from him. Gotcha. Last question from me before we open this up to people um, in the audience if they want to come up on stage. How much of a role do you think that the Supreme Court and its various judgments which have come down in 2023 and 2022, we start with the repealing of Roe et al, are going to pay in uh, the framing of the uh, this Republican race? If Mike Pence has it his way, that will play a huge role because he is pushing Donald Trump and DeSantis and the rest of the field to the right. He is trying to stand on strongly in favor of abortion bans as possible on a national level. That is something he authentically believes as well. Trump's problem often is he doesn't always, he'll be very good at repeating the same thing over and over again that can help get his message through, but he does have messages discipline about what not to say. And he clearly was putting a lot of effort in avoiding taking ownership for the abortion um, decision and for national bans on abortion. But he keeps accidentally saying a lot more than I think his staff has decided he should which would be helpful in a primary, but he's in a strong enough position. He doesn't need that around his neck in the general. Um, but so far, it's been working the needling for Pence. I don't know if it's working from the way he wants it. He'd probably like Trump to stick to that point as much as possible so he can carve out an opening with himself for evangelical voters. Um, but Trump has been countering it um, preemptively. So that's hurt its effect. But Democrats are certainly happy that he's doing that because they now have a lot of great quotes to use against him. But I think in the primary, other than people being supportive of that, those actions and questions of candidates so they're going to focus on electability of the primary voters and how much they talk about it for the general is where the impact is going to be far more substantial that's going to really help biden secure a lot of the biden trump voters or the biden romney voters that crossed over and keep young voters engaged who are the group that is most strongly opposed to the overturning of rock first person on stage is mr mayhem himself mr mayhem what's your question to logan phillips yeah I, first i have uh, a statement and then i have two quick questions so the statement is, over the last decade or so, I've learned that polling is a pointless exercise. There's only one poll that matters, and that's on election day. And and so I, I take with a grain of salt anyone that's telling me that they can predict this stuff. But that being said, it's okay, relative- just on that point, and there were okay, okay. just okay. the obviously there was the 2016 election, okay, and. The soothsayers said that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Actually, it was in within a polling error, right? But if we're looking at polling for primaries, it is important for no other reason than donations. 
so to completely say that it's actually I'm putting words in your mouth here that it's some kind of yeah I am but uh, it's also a podcast and also we're friends so we we, we can go backwards and forwards on this um, to completely say that it's a, a voodoo science um, isn't true because if you are going to write a big check to a candidate at least you want to see that there is movement in the poll. So if for no other reason than that, and there are many other reasons, it is a valid science, is it not? Uh, like I said, I don't put any faith in it. If you want to put faith in it, you can. But the two quick questions I was going to ask might help us assess whether or not Logan has this stuff figured out. The first question would be, in the 2022 Oklahoma House of Representative election, What did you predict that Chris Banning would get 40, 54 0.6% of the vote in that primary? I didn't do that race. I did get 96.25% of races, predicted the GOP would win. What was the exact number I had? I have it right here. I had them winning 223 House races. They won 220, 22. I had Democrats winning 50 seats in the Senate. They won 51. I'll acknowledge polling, take it with a grain of salt. It's healthy to do. First of all, in primaries, it's a, it's, it's, um, a measure of where voters were last week. And it's not a perfect measure. So in primaries, especially presidential, people are always changing their mind. What you see now is not a prediction of where things will end. It's an assessment of where they roughly are last week. But the second is people are responding to polls at a much lower rate than they used to, largely because there's a lot of spam calls. And most of the time you get a call from a random number you regret answering because they're trying to sell you or scam you into something. So their job's a lot harder. That being said, 2016, 2020, those are the two worst years for polling we have, at least since Truman. 2022, it was pretty good, a little to the right, but pretty good. 2018, it was fantastic. 2012, it was fantastic. 2014, it was good. Oh, wait, it was very good. So it's not always a disaster. It gives us a really good indicator to say what races are probably in play, where are things probably. Just don't take it as perfect because, yeah, there's a much bigger chance and big misses now than there used to be for that reason. Yeah, no, I, I definitely trust horse racing handicapping more than I do political pollsters. But the next question would be when it comes to 2024 libertarian candidate, who are you predicting is going to emerge as the Libertarian candidate? I don't have a prediction for that. Probably should be paying a little more attention. It's just with a two-party system, there's only two people that can win. And so the question is, will this candidate be able to make waves? And I think that has a lot more to do with the two main candidates, the Democrat and the Republican, and how recently a third-party candidate paid spoiler. Because once the third party plays spoiler, like Ralph Nader, voters vote for the third party a lot less for the next few cycles. I don't know if we saw Gary Johnson or Joel Steinberg in 2016. There's a small chance that they were that decisive factor. I wouldn't rule it out. So we saw a lot less of the people voting for it in 2020. And probably two, you'll probably get a little more in 24, but not as much as you had then. I don't think they have too much of an impact personally. Maybe that could change. If it's Teddy Roosevelt running in the Bull Moose Party, former president, that ends up being Donald Trump or something, then yeah, that can make a massive impact. But as it stands now, I think it's secondary. So as a result, I have failed to pay attention to the libertarian presidential primary. I don't think it's like the big decider in this process. Yeah. What I would just say is that uh, I would encourage you to pay attention because uh, when Joe Jorgensen, even the uh, terrible performance on the national scale in 2020 in swing states, the votes that she got literally decided elections in certain states. And the most likely candidate, in my opinion, to emerge as the libertarian candidate, Chase Oliver, is the one that caused the runoff between Warnock and Walker in Georgia. We do aim to play the spoiler. And so I would highly recommend taking a look at this stuff because we do play a role in the states that matter. As anyone that follows politics understands on a national scale, 
it's very few districts that actually decide the presidential election. And it's those third party votes that uh, play a role. And people uh, tend to ignore that, especially the pollsters. Thank you. Have a good day. Hate to agree with, with Mr. Mayhem, and that'd be the wrong statement. But I was actually going to pull up uh, the Libertarian performance and that runoff uh, for Georgia because it actually ended up being decisive, didn't it? I think it would have been decisive if there weren't any third parties allowed in Georgia. I think third parties existing matter a lot. I think if a candidate really appeals to one party or the other, it makes a difference. And libertarians do tend to appeal more to Republicans. A lot of these voters sometimes they wouldn't vote if they didn't feel represented by that candidate. So it's not necessarily clear that they'd go to one party or the other. And then second, Walker's lead was so minimal that any third party candidate that got 1% was going to be able to fend him off. I think Oliver got like 2.1. Also, by the way, I did actually spend an enormous amount of time in Georgia predicting Chase Oliver's margin because I agree that was absolutely essential for the runoff. So what I was running then, you have to look at it race by race, right? So once we get closer to the general election, I'll definitely be taking third party candidates into account because they'll matter then. I just don't as much at this stage in the process. And maybe that's a bias of mine. I guess I'm a little annoyed by the third parties. It might be my bias, but it's just, it feels like an inefficiency of the system in a way that- Logan, Logan, you know what? You're going to be a British polar then. If, if you're upset by small, smaller parties, my God, do not ever poll in Europe and or Canada and- Oh, oh, I don't mind it then. I think then it makes full sense. And if America had a rank, in places where you have rank choice- Third parties have a lot more to play. And I don't think it's ideal to have necessarily a two-party system where people force into two choices. It's just given the system that we have, when there's only two candidates that can win, that can mobilize a presidential coalition, it means that voters aren't sorting in themselves in the way that they can make a difference and make their voice heard. And it feels like the third-party candidates take away people's voices almost because they're unable to have a say in the process. It's almost not voting at all for that reason. So that's why it frustrates me because I want every voice to be heard and I feel like they aren't as a result of that process. Does that make sense? I would say that everybody's voice isn't heard because there's two monolithic parties. But Yeah, I agree with that too. We, we, we could go on, on and on here. Um, just before uh, we come to Agent for, for his question, in terms of let's move past the, the primaries Though you have said there are differences between, let's say, how California does its primaries as opposed to another state. In terms of that granularity, let's say, first rank voting, et cetera, et cetera, how do you factor that into kind of polling predictions? I understand that you look at uh, a whole basket of polls which have been relatively accurate. You rank them as well. But what are the other factors which maybe then you put on top of that to be able to come up with your poll and predictions. Did you say in general, I might have misheard you, did you say for ranked choice? Uh, yeah, I, I did mention ranked choice. Okay, we'll go for in general first and we'll talk about ranked choice. So when it comes to in general, polling is an important part of it. But as to your last questioner asked, Roger made a good point about polling does have a higher degree of misses lately. So you have to take in other things to account. You always did, but I think they're a higher share of your prediction. So I'll look at things, especially for Senate and governor and house races. Like, I'll look at how that person did the last time they ran. And specifically, I'll look at how they did relative to the national vote after adjusting for any changes in how that state has voted in recent elections or the congressional district. Um, and we'll take that into account. And if they beat an incumbent last time, we'll expect them to do a little better because um, it's easier when you're the incumbent than when you're the challenger. Um, we'll also look at fundraising and the state's vote in the last two presidential elections and their last midterm. 
I'll take into account the experience of the candidates. First-time candidates that haven't run before, they tend to do a lot worse on average. Now, you got your Raphael Warnocks and your Mark Kellys, your Glenn Youngkins, people who break the mold on that front. It's just if you happen to have one before, A, that's self-sorting because you might not be a candidate if you have lost. So it says you at least have some base competence. And B, you get better as a candidate with that experience. Now, when it comes to looking at ranked choice, you have to figure out not just who our voters' top preferences are. And I think it's a great system because it allows people who, like I suspect, Roger, who aren't always comfortable with the two status quo candidates to have a say and be able to make their voice heard in a way that will still influence the system and rank candidates second. So they can say, hey, this is the best person to choose. This person is okay as my backup option. And eventually that third person in some of those ranked choice voting will probably end up winning if you give it a decade or two for the political system to adjust to the new incentives. So in ranked choice, you have to figure out first two people's first choice preferences. Then you have to figure out where their voters are going to go second, how they're going to break it down, and who they're going to vote third. Because the way ranked choice works, for those that don't know, you rank your candidates, let's say, one through four. The candidate that's in fourth place gets removed. If no one has at least 50% of the vote, all of their voters go to the person they rank second. And keep doing that till someone breaks 50%. You know, in addition to predicting what they're most likely to do, I also then have to run a simulation that goes through it like 50,000 times every update to say, hey, if I'm wrong by this much, randomly, I'll be wrong by like their vote will, preference will shift each time by a certain amount, each simulation. Here's what could happen instead. That's how I get a probability of the chances of different outcomes. And either because I've hit on something or from sheer luck, for whatever reason, my rank choice predictions have been the most accurate. I think I was off by like 0.1 or 0.5 or something for the Alaska House Senate and the Senate and House races. And then New York mayor was like off by 1%. But I think that's just like that level of accuracy is going to be hard to keep up. It probably was some luck as well. But it's a fun challenge to try to figure out how a new system, at least new for America, what was going to work out. Just another quickie from me, then we're going to come to you, Agent, and then we're going to start to wind this down. Uh, when you were speaking to, to Roger, you mentioned the 2012, uh, no, sorry, 2014, 2018 has been years where polling was much more accurate. Is there a presidential effect which maybe skews doing a poll of polls? And are things then a, a little bit more predictable? outside of presidential voting years? It's a valid thesis. This is a problem with small sample sizes, which is always true if you have national elections and you have a small sample size, especially recently. We just don't know yet. If it happens again in 2024, I'd say probably. Up until that point, it's just as likely to be random chance or something like that. It's possible Trump in particular, that his supporters are less likely to answer polls, but they tried to adjust for that way more, I think, in 2022 to the point of overcorrection. But I think they're going to try in 2024 after learning their lesson both times. So I don't know if they're going to be less likely to respond to polls than they would have been in 2020. It's also like part of what made 2020 so hard to poll was that you had a lot of people staying home all the time. They were disproportionately de-leaning because of COVID. And so they're answering the phone more. You had Trump going after the integrity of pollsters all the time and saying they were scheming people, which meant Republicans were a lot less willing than normal to talk to them. That wasn't really a thing in 2016. And so it was just really hard to be able to adjust to all of those things. And pollsters didn't make the changes they should have made after 2016. Gotcha. Agent, you have the honor, sir, of uh, bringing up the weird. I know it deep in my water, in my bone marrow, that your question is going to be the most excellent one. Do not let me down, Agent. Thanks. Yeah, I just raised my hand when Logan mentioned that he was annoyed at the existence of third parties. And it's the only shred of hope that we have in our system. 
I consistently vote third party. The one time I didn't for the presidential was John Kerry. I've always voted third party because I think it is it's a total corruption of the representative system. We've settled into a system of just two party domination. You would have never had you not had more than two parties. You would have never had the Republican Party emerge and be able to end slavery. And but unfortunately, it's locked in since then. So many of the problems that we see are a result of lack of representation and basically just duopoly. So I wouldn't go as far as you, but I will recognize that it does make it does mean that if a party's doing an absolutely terrible job, they're still going to stick around, especially because Americans love change so much. But it's going to go back and forth. And, and that is a problem. The reason why people vote mostly in two parties is that they're strategic, because in the way our system works now, there are only two parties. You, you have to get close to 50 percent of the vote. There's only two parties that have a chance at getting anything close to that. And it is extremely hard to build a third coalition that would be credible. However, and I support this type of change, I think you can change the rules and that creates openings for third parties. There's a reason other countries have third, four, five parties. Like you, you can give a reasonably solid prediction at how many parties a country is going to have once you know their electoral rules. And if you have the first press, the post system, especially when you have to win it across the national vote, the way our electoral college works. And if you don't get over 270 votes, the house gets to decide, not the people, which is a real flaw in our system, then your vote isn't going to be able to go to a winning candidate. But it can change if you change those rules. I think ranked choice is a potential option. If you have a parliamentary system, which would be a lot harder to change something as aggressively as that, but maybe you'll see a state one day do that. That has the type of parliamentary system where it's like a percent of the electorate, the percent of the vote they get gets represented. Yeah, you'd see a lot more third parties. You'd probably see a stronger Green and Libertarian party. You'd probably see a party we're not even thinking about that'd be a neat combination of ideas. And that perhaps could challenge parties to be less corrupt and more representative than they are now. So I get you. I do. I do think in the current system, if you're in a swing state and you have a clear preference between the D and the R and you want to have an impact, voting third party is probably not going to get you there. But if you feel that way, maybe you should be organizing. There you go. There has been your Mid-Atlantic. Logan Phillips, can we get you on again, sir? Maybe after Iowa? Uh, yeah. Hey, I apologize for the long-winded answer. Everyone else's chance to ask questions. Know, detailed and substantive, I believe, were the words that I, I would use, sir. And thank you for being a friend of the show. Thank you for your question, Agent. A little bit more philosophical as opposed to drilling into the the button of what Logan was saying, specifically to do with the Republican runners and riders for the 2024 election. But we appreciate it anyway. And of course, we also we always appreciate our good friend, Mr. Mayhem, who always bats for the Libertarian Party whenever there is a conversation about the, the two big beasts of American politics, the Republicans and the Democrats. Mid-Atlantic, we are going to be putting out more shows. So if you like the to look at US politics and maybe contrast it with the UK politics, this is your time. We're going to be doing at least two shows per week. Don't forget, if you are listening to the podcast, if you download this at home, whether you're on Spotify or on um, Apple iTunes, there is a way that you can get your voice onto the podcast. It's downloading Clubhouse. Download the Clubhouse app and you can be in the audience. And then when we uh, ask people to come up on stage, you can come up on stage. Another way in which you can interact with the podcast is by writing me an email. You know what? I'm vain. I do a little bit of praise. However, 
feel free to tell me where I'm going wrong and where I haven't grilled the, the guests enough by sending me an email at royfield at gmail.com. I will respond. And if you say something which I can truly learn from, you never know, it can find its way onto the show. Another way which you can help the podcast if you are a fan is by going on to Apple, iTunes and writing a review. Even if nothing else, just go rate it. That's a brilliant way for us to get more listeners to the show because we want to break through that 10,000 download marker before we get to Iowa, which is part of the reason why we're going to pump out more shows, get more guests like Logan onto Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, left of centre politics is right thinking politics. And whilst we say we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, one thing we absolutely do believe is that the neoliberal experiment has gone on way too long. 40 years of widening health inequality on both sides of the Atlantic. It's it's now time for us to realise that the neoliberal uh, paradigm has failed and we need a new basis of economic equity, whether it is in the United Kingdom, in the United States or in Canada and dare I say it, throughout the world. So on that note, I will say, Logan Phillips, um, tell everybody where they can find uh, your your website and what you're working on at the moment, sir. Yeah, you can find it on racetothwh.com. So the whole point of my site is to help people understand the political environment. So especially, A, if you're trying to follow and understand it, B, especially if you're the type of person who likes to volunteer or donate or get engaged, my goal is to make it as easy as possible for you to understand what's going on. So we were the most accurate in the country last cycle in predicting the House and the Senate. But more than that, I think, at least I hope, we made it easier to understand than others too. So that may ensure that if you're going to donate to those races or give your time, you're going to give it to the places where it will make the biggest difference. Political systems, complicated, and engaging democracy helps to understand. So that's racetothewh.com. I am now going to be shifting to putting a lot more general election content for the Senate and the House forecast, which should be coming out soon. And uh, GOP primary, I have all sorts of stuff that will give you a little bit of a deeper view of what's happening in all of the key states and national. Uh, do you have a newsletter? I'm on Twitter, though. Logan at R2WH. Yeah, and it's been fun to be on here. It's always fun to have you again. There you go. There's been Mid-Atlantic. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. 